All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? Okay, all right, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. We've been chilling this morning. It's been a very chill environment. Yes, I hope you enjoyed it. Because that stops now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. <laughs> hey, uh, well, I, I do. Y'all know I'm a class participation guy, and so uh, I'm, I'm feeling it. I have not been up here to preach in several weeks, and so... Uh, so, yeah, we're going to get out of here about 2 o'clock, fellas. Just letting y'all know. 2 o'clock, uh, go, uh, go ahead and start preparing your stomach now. Um, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here. For those of you that don't know me, I uh, am excited today. And I want to start today with a couple of things before we jump into our time in the Word. First, I want to say uh, happy Black History Month. We didn't get a chance to start. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to, uh, because last week we didn't have service and we were out there grinding. Uh, we didn't get a chance to, to formally introduce that or kind of pinpoint it, celebrate it. And so want to make sure we say happy Black History Month. Excited thank, and thankful for the history of uh, African-Americans in our country. Not just in our country, but, man, even in the history of the faith. Like you think about Augustine as a North African and, uh, and, and what he did for the faith. And I can, I'm not going to nerd out on y'all. Sorry. I take that back. Just we'll talk. If you have any questions about who Augustine is, you holler at your boy later. Uh, but. There's that, and, and to the point of us grinding last Sunday, I likewise just want to take a second to say thank y'all to everyone who came out. I'm serious. Give yourself a round of applause. Uh, it was really an incredible uh, outing, and I deeply appreciate y'all. Uh, let me just, just for emphasis, like, I went to a gala this week in support of a civic group here in Dove Springs. It's ran by a friend of, of mine and a supporter of our church. And while I was at that gala, uh, just, just walking around and saying, like, hey, how are you doing? You know, people get that thing going where they're like, yeah, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm this person, I, or this is my name. Uh, I lead this church called Refuge Community Church. Probably three or four people randomly were like, oh, y'all are the ones that didn't have service this week to go and help, right? And just, like, randomly out of nowhere. And so uh, Misty, uh, no, Dean, used some language regarding how it impacted a family member of hers and said it was a testimony to God's people. And I want to... I want to echo that, not just for her father, but really for the greater community that we serve, a testimony of God's people and his, his hand at work in his people in order to love and serve and display the redemptive work of the gospel. And so, again, thank you. Give yourself another round of applause, because I really am. I love y'all, and I'm proud of y'all. Okay, having said all that, we're going to jump into our time in the Word. And today I'm excited because we're starting a new sermon series through the book of uh, Philemon. Everybody say Philemon because you didn't know how to say that before right now. I promise you, because most of us have probably never read Philemon unless you skim through it during your Bible reading plan. And even then, it's one chapter, so I know it was coupled with like three or four other chapters. And so you probably read the, the, the Philemon and then you jump straight into Jude, or I know where the Bible books are at. I just can't remember where they're at right now, and so I don't know what's before or after it. But one of the ones that's before or after it, and then all of a sudden, you didn't even really think about what it meant or what it was doing, what it was communicating. And in reality, Philemon is an incredible, incredible book of the Bible. It invites us into the story of a runaway slave named Onesimus and his relationship with Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, and how Paul seeks to restore Onesimus to Philemon not just in a way that restores a runaway slave to his master, but in a way that restores a brother to a brother and revolutionizes maybe the way the people in that world and, and the people around Paul and around Onesimus and Philemon himself maybe saw 
the relationships between humanity and what the gospel does to those relationships. It's an absolutely incredible book. Once you know the backdrop to it and the backstory, you're not just reading these, these words on a page, but you're actually seeing the, what's going on behind it and what's going on in it and what it's telling us. It's incredible. It's so much so that, that it's worth this. If you are interested in learning more about it, uh, in the weekly email that was sent out this week, uh, and you can also access it through our resources tab underneath, uh, I think it's actually devotionals, that's a resources in our menu, and then devotionals. Uh, I, I posted on our website some, some material that I wrote for seminary about this book that gives us just a little bit of backdrop to Philemon. And so there's like a short introduction on there. Uh, it doesn't have any big nerdy language in it. It just is, is really straight to the point, helps you see uh, what's going on. And then there's also a, a, a short article, short by short by seminary standards, it's not that short, if I'm being honest with you, about, uh, about slavery in the Roman world, if you're curious about that. That is obviously a big subject that's happening here, uh, and there's a lot to know about that uh, and kind of distinguish it from maybe what we perceive as, as slavery or the context or the environment around slavery. Uh, so both those things are really important. Go check that out when you get a chance or if you want to. However, uh, man, it, it is, it's a powerful book, and I'm excited to start talking about it. And really, the two ideas that I think come most out of this book is, one, the reality that uh, the, the redemptive and reconciling work of, of Jesus, right, what he does when he enters into our story and when he dies on the cross and when he resurrects from the tomb, right, the work of Jesus, that, what, what happens as a result of that in the lives of everyday people as we look at each other and how we relate to each other and what it does to our relationships, what it does to the structures of the world around us, how we participate in those structures is extraordinarily powerful. That's the first thing that this book is starting to communicate to us. The other thing that the book communicates to us, though, is, is, a, is a really pretty difficult question that I think a lot of us do need to wrestle with, and, and it's the question we're going to start with this week. And that's this question. What stops us from living out what we believe? What stops us from living out what we believe? Right, this, is, this is a question that I think is very much at the heart of what Philemon is talking about, or what, what Paul is talking about in Philemon. There is uh, an incredible quote that uh, a woman named Marianne May Thompson uses, or, or wrote in her commentary on Philemon, uh, and it's this, that the situation which confronts Paul, and which he uh, subsequently addresses in the epistle, that is the letter Philemon, uh, tests the reconciling power of the gospel that you proclaim. What does that mean? It means that what Paul's going to do and what, what Paul's working out here in Philemon is, is really powerful and it's really critical because it asks the question, what stops us from, from actually living out this thing we believe in? And what makes these words so powerful is that it's really putting to the test what Paul was talking about during his time and during his ministry. He, he uses language in other letters in the New Testament saying stuff like there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's no, no free, no slave there is now no female no male there's only one in christ he uses powerful redemptive uh, you know equality focused language and then he enters into a scenario and a situation in which a runaway slave is having a dispute with his master and paul enters into an extraordinarily difficult social environment dealing with things that are that are obviously at the antithesis of what meaning like they're the opposite of what he's talking about when he's talking about equality and, and, and unity and oneness, uh, but he's also talking about issues interpersonally. Um, one of the theories behind what was actually happening in, 
Philemon's house is the fact that there's high likelihood uh, that he was treating Onesimus poorly, and that's probably the reason Onesimus ran away in the first place. And so, so this is putting to the test a lot of what Paul talks about in this book. And that's why the question, what stops us from living out what we believe is so important. I, I want to start by really thinking about, uh, by, by before we, we jump in, I want to answer that question today at least a little bit. But I want to start by, by jumping in and getting kind of an introduction to the book that we already read together. But I want to I jump back in here. Uh, and I, I want to show us a couple of things that I think are going to be powerful and that I hope are encouraging and a little bit challenging uh, once we start to understand it. Now, let's start just by taking a look at those first seven verses uh, of the book, of the letter again. Right, Paul starts, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, uh, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. So right away, I want you to notice that Paul sees this man as a, as a co-worker. Right. I, I, and again, I want you to really pick up on something here. We have a a man who owns a slave, a man who potentially has mistreated this individual. And, and Paul's looking at him saying, hey, I respect you as a co-worker. He goes on to list off the, the rest of those who are living with uh, Philemon, Philemon. By the way, if I say that weird, it's because I listen to a British Bible. And they say, uh, they say Philemon in their British Bible. And then when you listen to an English Bible, it'll say Philemon. Uh, and so I got, I'm, I'm going to say it differently all day today, just so you know. So just deal with it. Just, just work around it with me. Um, verse 3, he continues, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is where it gets, gets I think, pretty powerful. Verse 4 starts, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. So he's, he's, he's affirming a lot of things here, friends. There's, there's real faith, real faith going on in Philemon's life. Real faith. There's also a, something that is blessing and, and creating love for others in Philemon. He continues in verse 6. I pray that your participation in the faith may have become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. That's like saying, I hope you take inspiration from us. And then he, in verse 7, he finishes up, for I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been restored or refreshed through you, brother. That's speaking directly, not to the whole household of Philemon, but to Philemon specifically. And he's saying, through you, Right, the brothers and sisters in the faith have been refreshed. Something powerful has happened in their life through the way you live your life. And so, what's what's at work here? Why why is this challenging? Uh, it's it's challenging because we're put in front of uh, a, a pretty a pretty challenging little contradiction when we see a slave master who's participating in a heinous structure. Uh, and, and again, even abusing that individual to the point that he may have run away in an attempt to flee abuse, uh, and yet there's a lot of praise heaped on this individual early on in this letter. And, and I want to bring this up to you because I want to put it in front of you to challenge a bit of what you may see and a bit of how you may perceive life. Uh, I think it is easy for us to approach something like this in our current modern cultural climate and go, you messed up. I'm writing you off. If you've messed up, there's nothing worth praising in you. If you've messed up in a way that, that angers me enough, that one thing can strike everything off 
and there can be no redeeming quality in you if you failed in one way. And, and I want to, to really pull from here the reality that for Paul, as he observes the life of Philemon, that is not the case. He's going to go on to prod Philemon in some powerful ways. And he's used some language that's aggressive here in a little bit. However, when he observes Philemon's life, Philemon is not defined by the failures of his conduct or his view of the world that, that are creating a contradiction in the gospel and Philemon's way of life. That's not what defines Philemon for Paul. And I want to encourage you, that's not what defines us for God. If you have failed in your life, if you have encountered failure after failure, if you've come to faith and you know that you can list off, yo, I have good fruit in my life. I've blessed others. I've loved others. I've cared for others. But I have failed deeply and dramatically. I want to encourage you, friend. God does not define you by those failures. But I also want to encourage you that God also don't define you by them successes. He defines you by the work of that man, Jesus, who enters into the story, lives a beautiful, God-honoring, perfect life, takes the cross in our sinful place, and resurrects to bring us new life. That's what he sees. That's how he defines. That's how God defines you. And so when you're wrestling with what you've done or what you failed to do, if, you've, if you're wrestling with, with how you want to build your identity and you're trying to, trying to put all the cards on the table of your conduct and you're saying, all right, man, how much do these weigh on the good side? How much do these weigh on the bad side? I want you to take that weight, that scale, and I want you to take it off the table and on it I want you to place the person of Jesus. That's the first thing that we see here. That's the first thing that's happening in Philemon. There's a very real Christian person who has some very real failures that Paul is going to address. Now, now what are the failures, right? I think, again, it's obvious. This man uh, in the Roman world owns another person. He owns another person. And, and short snippet of the essay, I want to encourage you to go read for yourself because it's much more helpful than what I'm going to do in, in 30 seconds. Uh, again, slavery in this time, not a racial thing. They could have been the same race. Uh, there was no one that was by nature born a slave. When we think about uh, slavery in America, we think about those who were looked at as a certain skin color and then said, by nature, that person is a slave. By nature, that person is less valuable than the other types of people, than, than the lighter people, right? Than white people, and there's like a cascading hierarchy of, of your worth and value. You had you know, Native Americans in there and all kinds of stuff. That's not what's going on here. People could have been the same ethnic heritage, but, but gone into slavery to avoid financial ruin because they were behind on taxes, uh, because they were captured in a war with, with, with warring tribes that were of the same background and same people and same language. Tons of stuff could happen here, right? That we don't, we don't know much about Onesimus beyond the story that we're in. Uh, but, but nonetheless, the fact that we can look at Philemon and say, hey, you're hearing Paul talk about this unifying, powerful, reconciling language, and you haven't let this go, shows that there's something there. On top of that, this sort of potential for mistreatment that's happening here. And, and again, it's easy for us in our cultural day to look at that and go, man, what's wrong with that guy? But friends, a lot of us are there. A lot of us are there. Yeah, praise God. There ain't, ain't no, you know, economic slaves in, in our modern day. Praise God. But that doesn't mean that everyone in here is living according to what you believe in, friend. It doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that every person in here is out here uh, walking and saying, hey, I believe in the unifying, redemptive, forgiving, loving, compassionate work of Jesus, and I live it out every day. 
I, I'm the, I'm, I am the most, I'm the most humble person you know. I'm the most compassionate person you know. I'm the most forgiving person you know. I'm the most loving person you know. I wanna, I wanna remind you, ain't, no, ain't none of us out here like that. We're all wrestling with the reality that we say we believe one thing when we come and sit in this room and sing praises to Jesus, when we open our Bible and we read and we say, I want this to influence how I live my life, and we live a completely other way, so many different areas of our lives. And the thing is, I think there's reasons for that. There's reasons for that. I, I want to work through a couple of them, all right? Uh, the reality is we come to faith, but we also have pressures all around us. We have pressures all around us that make living out faith difficult, and so did Philemon. So did Onesimus. So did Paul. Paul has aspects when he talks about himself, and he's like, man, I'm struggling here, there. Right? And so this is a very real thing. But when we think about the pressures that are on us, uh, there's a, uh, Anisha, there's a slide for that, if we just pull that up, that I, I want us to think about together. What is it actually that stops us from, from living out what we believe in? I think there's two different things to think about here. One, there's external factors that influence us, and there's internal factors. This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I, I want us to at least think about this together a little bit. Right, what are some of the external pressures that, that influence us or that pressure us not to live out what we believe? I think one of them is easy. One of them is society around us. One of them is a society around us. The reality for Philemon is that he lived in a world where slavery was absolutely understood. I don't, I don't think you get what I'm saying with that. I mean that it was a fact of life that there was no, no one conceived of it to ever be able to go away. There was no democratic process to try to make it go away. There had been several protests to try where slaves rose up and said, hey, I'm going to fight against this. They had been put down and mass murdered. There was no way in, in Philemon's mind that the society around him was going to budge on the idea of slavery. And society for him said, no, that, that's not something you give away. That's not something you step out of. At the same time, right, this is kind of the same thing that happens in the abolitionist movement right around the time of the, of the American Civil War, right? So many of the abolitionists, the people that wanted to abolish slavery in, in the U.S., had this vision of equality that was built on the faith, and yet the world around them said, no, no, that slavery can't go away. There's so many economic realities. There's, there's natural realities. I mean, I'm white and this person's this color, right? They, that was the view of the world around them, and yet society, when it pressed down to say, no, you can't think that way, so many of the abolitionists in, in that time said, no, 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 but that's just not right. We may be a minority, especially in the southern part of the then United States, but that minority was able to say, but on the grounds of truth, you're incorrect. Right? All men are made equal. All men are made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God. This was, this was what it looked like to fight back against a, a society that said something was right, but in reality it was wrong. Let me, let me just say one other thing, maybe two other things about this. Friend, just because everyone around you says something is right, don't make it right. Philemon was surrounded by people that said, slavery is normal. You lose a war, become a slave. The abolitionists were told that slavery was normal. Your skin is black, you're a slave. Just because the society around you says something is right, doesn't mean it's right, friend. It doesn't mean it's right. Society has been wrong about a ton of stuff. An incredible amount of stuff. A shocking amount of stuff. If you walk around saying what everyone else thinks is what I'm going to think, I guarantee you, you're going to be wrong about a lot of stuff too. 
So society is not always right. The place, second, the place that I think a lot of the society conversation uh, uh, teases itself out is something that I want to, I want to, I want to walk through kind of, kind of carefully here because I feel like I'm walking into a bit of a minefield. Is the area of politics. I think politics, when it comes to society, is one of the most formative things that we walk in in our lives, that we experience, that we we handle in our lives that the society presses down on, especially here in the United States. And what's challenging is that for so many of us, um, so many of our parents, so many people that we know and that we love and that we respect, there has been a mass exchange for the good news of Jesus and the views of a political party. So there used to be a time and a day where those two things stood distinct from one another. There was the way of Jesus, the way Jesus loves, the way he sees the world, the way he sees society, and then there was government. And government was always meant to display the way of Jesus, was always meant to display what God's compassion and love and and protection and, and, and restoration, restitution looked like in the world. However, right, over the course of time, Right, the, and, and let me say this first. As a result, politics and, and our view of Jesus, they have to mingle. I want to make sure I'm very clear about it. They have to mingle. Meaning the way, we, the way we feel about the world and how it's shaped by the love and the death and the resurrection of Jesus has to influence how we see politics in the world. Because if you don't, you're just going to violate your conscience over and over again. So they have to interact in some way. They have to influence what you view as right, what you view as wrong, what you think the best policy is. But the, the, the issue that I'm talking about is not that they influence one another, but rather people have exchanged the view of one political party for the way of Jesus. When we exchange and say the way of Jesus is not different than the way of the Republican, Democratic, whatever party, then we have exchanged the way of Jesus for the view of a political party. And that political party does not have, have you know, the wraps on the way of Jesus, friend. It doesn't. And in a room like this, let me be very honest with you. In a room like this, it would be easy to sit there and dunk on Christian nationalism, right? The the more far right-wing conservative platform that seems to think everything they do is exactly what, like, God wants. And it's kind of like them movies where, like, you're in the medieval period, and when they're about to go into the the war, and, like, someone just raises a sword, and they're like, God wills it, right? It's kind of got that vibe to it, where it's like every political statement, every political move that's made, there's like a God wills it. Why? Because we're doing it. That's why he wills it. Like, and if we're doing it, then it must mean God wills it. It'd be easy to dunk on that crowd. And let me, let me just say to you, I think that there's a lot of issues with that that are very detrimental to our nation and I think very detrimental to our faith as it's perceived and as it works in our nation. However, if I go to the other side, there's things that are going on here just as bad. Because some of us have exchanged the view of liberal Democrat policies as the way of Jesus. And we've said, well, this is the way of compassion. This is the way of mercy. This is the way of providing for people that are in need. So this must be the way of Jesus. So every political move, every policy that comes out of this side, we go, that one must be right. And that exchange, let me tell you, friend, it corrupts the way you see the world and it corrupts the way you see your God. Because everything that those people say, everything a politician says, everything a a, a political party puts out there, you start to think that must be the voice of God when the voice of God tends to be at the center going, some of you reflect me and some of you don't. But my way is my way. And I call people to go from that broad way into a narrow way that reflects who I am, what I do. So I want to encourage you, be careful with that. 
Be careful with that. The more, you, the more comfortable you are just docking Republican, Democrat, all the way down your ballot box, the more you probably think that one voice is the voice of God. And I want to remind you it's not. So politics. That took way more time than I thought it was fitting to. All right, so we're going to zoom through the rest of this, fam. We're going to zoom through it. Uh, family. Family is a tough one. That's a type of pressure that is extraordinarily challenging. I wish I could tell you the amount of times I've talked to somebody and they say, man, my family won't talk to me anymore because I attend a Christian church and we grew up Catholic. The amount of times I've heard that as a Hispanic man, as a Latino, is wild. It is frankly wild. I mean, people that like they had childcare lined up every single day and the very next day somebody was like, I can't take care of your baby no more. Why? It's just a personal thing. Mija, mijo, sorry. Uh, you know, man, don't, don't be deceived. The Catholic Church, this type of thing happens all the time. It happened with atheist friends of mine, too. People that grew up atheists, they came to faith, and all of a sudden the pressure was like, man, don't, don't change your mind on this, don't change your mind on that. And the moment it started to change, there was pressure from family to not, to not conform, not to, not to try and align, again, our view with the way of Jesus. So family, that's challenging. Now, what are some of the common causes of this? And, and that, that when we give into these pressures, a lot of the, this is not, again, an all-consuming list here, friends. But you think about things like insecurity, acceptance, fear. Some of us, some of us fear what it's going to be like to sit at a, a table full of friends, and they view the political world around us one way, and you view it another. Let me be honest and let you be honest. You're terrified of that. Some of you are terrified. Sometimes I'm terrified. I'm a little more brash than the common guy, so I ain't going to act like I'm that terrified. But it's okay. It's very human to feel that sense of, of terror. Why? Because we were made to be in, in harmony with the people around us. We were made to be in that sort of beautiful, godly, compassion, mercy, love-filled relationship. And the way people have started to, to, to align in our society and culture, the moment you oppose someone's views on this or on that, all of a sudden you're the enemy and not just someone that has a different opinion. And so there's a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity baked into this. But there's some internal stuff that happens too, right? Because it's not just that the outside pressures get to us. It's that there's stuff happening inside that really, really eats at us. Right? When, when I was, again, not an exhaustive list, I only have so much space on here. And every week somebody's like, hey, that was kind of small on that screen. I guarantee you I'm going to get that comment today. Someone's going to be like, hey. And it's not just one of y'all. It's a ton of y'all, to be 100% honest. Um, right? So just a couple of things to think about. Something like bitterness. Right? Something like bitterness. I'm going to level with you. There's some people in my life that I really don't like. And if you're being honest, there's some people in your life you don't like. And that didn't happen because you were like, I don't like the way their face looks. It didn't happen for that. It happened because there was one experience that led to another experience where you got hurt by them, you got angry at them. The process of forgiveness never came. You, and the idea of them being made in God's image and worthy of forgiveness and all that stuff it doesn't, you don't just not agree with it, it makes your blood boil. And it's hard to stand those people, much less want to offer them the grace and love of our Savior. When we're bitter, the things that we claim to believe, they get funneled through that lens of bitterness. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 I, I believe it for everybody else. But that person's taking a step too far. And usually a step too far has more to do with me than it does with the world around me. And so bitterness. I also think feelings of lack are really important to think about here, though. Because it's not just like bitterness, it's, it's also feelings of lack, meaning some of us have gone through extraordinarily difficult and challenging experiences in our life. 
Some of us have gone through traumatic childhood experiences, adolescent experiences, um, intimate experiences, whatever the case is. And, and the reality is a, a lot of the time in our mind and in our heart, we come out of that feeling a certain lack that we want to, that we want to fill in some way. And when we seek to fill it, right, the internal feelings of lack tend to, tend to tell us, no, 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 like that's not, you need that extra, you need a relationship with this guy when despite the fact that inside you're like, I know this guy's not right for me, right? Or, or, or the girl or whatever the case is, right? Feelings of lack that tend to push us toward things. Again, common causes for this, think about pain, hurt, trauma, right? Stuff that, that actively goes on in our lives. Now, I wanna, I wanna shortly mention something right here. There are also times we just love sin. We just love sin sometimes. I ain't gonna act like the internal things are just like we're just victims and we're just responding to the victimhood and we just, if it wasn't for these things outside and inside in my experiences, then I'd be completely fine. No, you could have lived an enchanted life, walked up and been like, I love me some sin. And it just, and you just decide, yeah, I, I want to believe these things, but I just love sin. I, I love this, I love that, right? And so I think that's another, another thing. And, and the last thing I'll say here, a little asterisk, I, I don't want y'all to think that this includes neurological disorders. I don't think this includes that. Things like addiction, anxiety, um, bipolar disorder, I don't think that that's included here. Because there are realities of living in a broken world when we feel like we're, we're under the weight of something like a neurological disorder. I don't think God looks at that and says, man, there's, there's an active disobedience against what you believe there. There's, there's an involuntary disobedience to what you believe there that, that's being weighed down by neurological disorders that are, that are med medical, chemical, and that God has graciously and, and I think fully supports the idea of us pursuing medical attention for them. Things like medication and stuff like that, okay? So I wanna make sure I, I, that's clear. Now, all this is the pressures that are around us, but what, what do you, you know, what does Paul gotta say about this? In Philemon's life, society was around him and all this stuff was happening. He probably did have some internal things. Like, he probably was scared of being like, you know, I don't think I should have slaves anymore. And the people around him being like, bro, that's crazy. So all this is happening in our lives. This was happening in Philemon's life. What is Paul's response? And I think it's important because it's in the very next verse. In verse 8, Paul has, I think, a, a powerful response to this idea of, of our struggles to live out what we believe. In verse 8, he continues, for this reason... Although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right. Verse 9. Oh, it, verse 9 may not be in there, and so I'm sorry, but you got a Bible. You could read it. Or you could listen to me read my Bible. Verse 9 continues. I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. That's what I appeal to you on. So what is Paul saying? In verse 8, he's saying, man, I know that you have all these beautiful things that you've done right. But I'm writing to you, Philemon, not, not the whole church. I'm writing to you. Because we all, we all know that Onesimus is with me, and you've done some foul things. And I'm, I'm writing you to try and compel you to make those things right, not based on just me commanding you to 
Though Paul says, I have the authority to do that, just so you know. Later on, he says, man, it's not lost on me that you owe me your very life in the faith. So he's, he, he's recognizing I wield an authority over your life that could, that could basically put me and you at odds. And in our community, in our faith, I win. I win every time. Ain't no one in your church going to be like, no, I think Philemon got this Christianity thing figured out over Paul. No one's going to say that. They're only going to side with me. But he says, but, but I want to appeal to you on the basis of love, friend. Love. Love for God. Love for others. And this is an appeal that through the Christian faith has been powerful and been consistent. Even going so far like in Deuteronomy at the very beginning, this prayer called the Shema, this idea of a prayer that so much of the Christian and Hebrew faith was built on was an appeal to be faithful to God as the people of God. God's people at this time were out in the wilderness. They were, they were like out in, in like interacting with other people and God compelled them, I want you to be faithful to me. Here are laws that keep you faithful to me. Here's a way of government that keeps you faithful to me. And even in the midst of all those laws, in the midst of the rules, the primary foundation for it wasn't obey or die. It wasn't I'm stronger than you. The foundation of it in Deuteronomy was, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him. Love him with all of your, with all of your strength, with all of your, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Uh, that might have been verse 5. I was out here skipping verses today, y'all. I'm sorry. Right, and so this is, this is the basis for, the, for, the, for our faith since, since the days of Moses. To love God. And to be persuaded not by, not by arguments of, of force, but by arguments of love. And that's been the basis of the argument. And so that's the end of the sermon, right? I'm at 33 minutes at the moment. That's the end of the sermon. Love God more. And if you love God more, right, then you'll be able to live out what you believe. And the church said, y'all wrong. Y'all wrong. See, look, y'all just believe in what people out here are saying. Y'all ain't thinking about it critically, because if I sent you out there like that, all of us would come back next week and be like, that guy was dead wrong. I walked out here and tried to love God more, and I failed. Just like Moses failed, just like Jacob failed, just like Solomon failed, just like the people of God failed time after time after time after time. And so this is an extraordinarily challenging idea. Friend, I might say it's an impossible idea, right? That you would somehow walk out of here, say, I'm going to love God more, and that's going to change my mind, and I'm never going to have to worry about this again. I'm always going to do what I believe, and I'm just going to always love God. I'm going to love him with everything inside of me, and that's going to be it. Because I promise you, you've tried that, and I've tried that, and none of us are in here saying, I got it down. Not a single one of us. So what do we do? So what do we do? How do you love God better? How do you love God better? How do you grow deeper in love with God? In a way that starts to make you go, I'm going to change the way I live, change the way I think, change the way I... How do you love God like that? How? Uh... There's certain times where people will tell you, read your Bible more, pray more, be in discipleship. All that is true. But, but I think Paul himself would have had a, a bit of a different perspective on this. I think that he would say, yes, yeah, something like reading your Bible is important. Something like being in community is extraordinarily important. 
something like praying or having an active prayer life is extraordinarily important. But I think Paul would have said, if any of that is done outside of the frame of this man hanging on this tree and resurrecting for you, all of it is done in void. All of it is done in purposelessness. None of it will actually stick to you in a way that's meaningful because you'll, you'll read thinking, I can become the better version of Moses. I can become the better version of Philemon instead of looking to the perfect version of Moses, the perfect version of Philemon, the perfect version of you. What do I mean? I, I mean, Jesus enters into the story, and he, he has this exact same, exact same idea. People ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he's like, love God and love other people. He, he sees love as this forming and shaping thing. He says, here's how... You, people are going to be able to tell you're my disciples, but will you love one another? And he continues to use this idea of love to shape our lives and to shape how we see the world, to shape how we respond to the people that oppress us, the people that hurt us, to, to offer forgiveness in radical ways and to shape the world around us, to shape injustice in radical ways. But he does it through this perspective of love. And the thing is, if that was the end of Jesus' life, it'd be a lot like what my sermon has been like up until this point, but that wasn't. That wasn't the end of it. That wasn't the end of what he said. He goes to the cross. He dies in our place. And on that cross, he takes all of the disbelief, all of the bitterness. He takes all of the, uh, of the feelings of lack. He takes the struggles against society. He takes the struggles against the family. He takes them to the cross. And in his death, in this upside-down world that Jesus comes from and that he invites us into, in his death, he declares, now I'm victorious over those things. Now, now you have struggles in this world, but but take heart, I've, over, I've overcome the world, right? The world that I'm bringing in answers the needs of the heart, but also invites us to, to go out and to, to redeem the world around us. He, in, in the place of broken-hearted people, through the power of his spirit, invites us to pursue him in the frame of his love on the cross, in the frame of his love to sacrifice himself for us, invites us to go and to pray and to read scripture and to do all that in that frame and then to say, God, on my own, the Bible and a human doesn't do that much. I know a lot of atheists who have the Bible bound like nobody's business. But in the frame of someone saved by the grace and mercy of God, in the frame of one who looks at that man on the tree and says, that's what love looks like. That's what care looks like. That's what compassion looks like. That's what it looks like. And that is for me. My heart is shaped not by what defines me in my actions, but by, by the actions of the one who would sacrifice himself for me. Right? My, my, my identity is not based on the feelings of lack, but the one who gave up everything so he could give me everything. Right? This is the way my life is defined and the frame in which I live my life. The way I come to my Bible, the way I come to prayer, the way I come to community, the way I come to discipleship, the way I come to society, the way I come to my family, the way I address my feelings of bitterness, the way I address my feelings of lack, all through the lens and, and the frame of this man's life. Death and resurrection. That man on the cross is what defines me now. That's how I define love now. That's how I define what love is to me now. That's how I know who loves me now and how much he loves me now. Right? That's the love that I think Paul is trying to appeal to Philemon with. Not, hey, I appeal to you on the basis of how much you should love God. But, hey, I appeal to you on the basis of how much God has loved you. That's the basis of love that I'm trying to try to get across to you, friend. 
when you look at Onesimus, when you look at the runaway slave that you maybe have abused, do you see a runaway slave? Or do, or do you see the Savior hanging on the tree in your place? Which one do you see? Which one are you looking at when you see him? That's the basis of love that I think Paul is trying to appeal to in Onesimus. And that's the love that I think he appeals to us in. Not how much do you love God, but how much does God's love compel you to respond in love to God? How much in, in, in what areas of your life are you walking in a way that is, a, is affirmed by that, that life, death, and resurrection? What, how, do you, how do you live out not what following him looks like, but what being loved by him looks like? Because if we defined our Christian walk not by how much we follow, but by how much we're loved, I think our life would look a lot more like Jesus's. But instead, we'll walk out the door and we'll go, hey, what are all the, all the boxes that I need to check? Instead of what is this love that's been bestowed on me? That's where we start in Philemon. I think that gives, gives birth to what we're going to talk about next week. But that's where I think Philemon starts. I appeal to you in love, brother who has some things right and has some things wrong. Sister who has some things right and has some things wrong. I appeal to you on the basis of love. A couple quick application points as we close up today. How do, we, how do we stay focused on this man on the cross, right? How do we stay in that front? How do we abide in him, as, as Jesus would say in the book of John? Uh, I think the first thing I want to encourage you to is uh, build diverse community. Build diverse community. Why? You surround yourself with a bunch of people who think just like you, ain't no room for Jesus. You surround yourself with a bunch of people who see the world just like you, there is no room for Jesus. There is just a lot of you. A lot of you telling you what's right, and y'all celebrating together. I got jokes, what I ain't gonna do. Um, after that, be uh, open and be honest with that diverse community. If you disagree with somebody about something, be honest about it. Why? Because if you ain't honest about it, there's never gonna be space to grow about that thing. And in this, I wanna encourage you to be compassionate with other people. Because if you're sitting there thinking you got everything right, you're with diverse community, you express that y'all disagree about something, and that just means that you hate each other, there still wasn't room for Jesus in that. There was still no room for Jesus, and there was still just a lot of you. Um, and so build diverse community, then be open and honest with that community. And the last one uh, is be accountable. Invite that diverse community to keep you accountable. Maybe they disagree with you about something. Revisit the subject. If it gets serious enough, holler at your boy. I'm not saying I got all the answers, but I'm saying I'm willing to try to help to the best of my abilities. We got Jermaine, our other elder, is in the, the kids' area right now. He's willing to help. There's a bunch of godly men and women in this place that would love to step in and help you work things out, not so that someone can figure out who's right, but that everyone can grow closer to the love of God. Okay. So um, let's close up today. Let's pray. Let's approach God asking him to, to help us abide in his love uh, and, and be accountable to continuously returning back to it. Father, thank you so much for... This morning, thank you for the opportunity we have to look at a book that's challenging, that is not an easy book to work through. It's one of my favorite books, Lord, but it's also an extraordinarily difficult letter to work through because it confronts us with so many of the realities of our life 
so many of the contradictions of our life. When we say we love something, we love someone and we follow you, and yet our lives can say something different at times. And yet in the midst of that, we understand and learn that you're faithful, God. You are faithful. You are compassionate. You are loving. Thank you. Help us to see that and to walk in that as we continue on in this book and as we continue on in our week this week. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.